0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And it's Saturday, time for a Vault episode. This one originally aired July 1st, 2021, and it is called The Plague of Mucus. Are you prepared? Are you? <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's 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 jump right into it.
2: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be diving into the ocean to take a look at slime, froth ooze and mucus of various kinds. And I thought maybe a good way to get in the mood for this kind of discussion would be to do a couple of literary readings, perhaps. Rob, if you're game. Uh, When I was thinking about this topic, something immediately came to mind. I remember there was some passage from Walt Whitman in which he identified very strongly and emotionally with becoming a bit of ooze, froth, and debris washing in the surf. Uh, do, Do you mind if I read a bit of Walt Whitman here? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so this is from his poem that I think the title's just taken from the first line, but it's called As I Ebbed with the Ocean of Life. The whole poem is too long to read, but I'm just going to read from the fourth section here, where he really talks about becoming the ooze. Ebb, ocean of life, the flow will return. Cease not your moaning, you fierce old mother. Endlessly cry for your castaways, but fear not, deny not me. "'Rustle not up so hoarse and angry against my feet "'as I touch you or gather from you. "'I mean tenderly by you and all. "'I gather for myself and for this phantom "'looking down where we lead and following me and mine.' Me and mine, loose windrows, little corpses, froth, snowy white, and bubbles. See from my dead lips the ooze exuding at last. See the prismatic colors glistening and rolling. Tufts of straw, sand, fragments, buoyed hither from many moods, one contradicting another. From the storm, the long calm, the darkness, the swell. Musing, pondering, a breath, a briny tear, a dab of liquid or soil up just as much out of fathomless workings fermented and thrown a limp blossom or two torn just as much over the waves floating drifted at random just as much for us that sobbing dirge of nature just as much whence we come that blare of the cloud trumpets we capricious brought hither we know not whence spread out before you you up there walking or sitting whoever you are We too lie in drifts at your feet. Oh, man.
1: Whitman uh, uh, feeling a little moody in that one.
0: Yeah, this is weird because uh, I mean Whitman has his his darker moods, but I feel like this is definitely one of the more downer Whitman moments. A lot of times he he finds a way to surge back up, but that's the end of the poem. It kind of ends on a down note. Though weirdly, even when Whitman is feeling down, you can still he you can tell he still has that universal connectedness perspective. He still yeah. is every molecule of everything in the ocean, even all the debris and ooze and froth and sand and trash.
1: Yeah, no, that's 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 really good. And uh, and when you initially brought this up, and I was reading it, I was like, oh man, this is this is reminding me of something. Not that it's reminding me of something specific, but just sort of a similar vibe. And it it got me thinking about H.G. Wells, uh, uh, particularly. I, I can't remember if it's when the time traveler goes to the very end of time or the very beginning, but he encounters kind of like uh, you know this this sludge like
0: dark world of um, of slimy life. Uh, i don 't remember either way, well, he goes toward the end when he goes the farthest in the future it 's when he encounters that the world is just crabs it 's like those <laughs> bi- you remember those those mm-hmm. big like arthropod type creatures, but maybe he also goes back in time maybe that 's working on the the old school primordial ooze kind of idea of the origins of life,
1: yeah, and you see this pop up in weird fiction of the the twentieth century as well, particularly in the works of um, of Clark Ashton Smith, who was a uh, uh, a writer of weird dark fantasy tales, and uh, was also a poet and uh, and I believe later in life he he worked with like um, a sculpture mm-hmm. but uh, but I was looking up like what was a what's a nice slimy ocean uh, bit from Clark Ashton Smith and I found a really good one from a story titled "The Light from the Pole and I'm not sure when this was written. I don't think it was actually published until after his death uh, but I'm just gonna read a, a quick paragraph from this if you don't mind. Go for it. Through the middle summer, the fisher-folk who dwelt in wattle huts below the tall towers of Farazin went forth daily in their coracles of hide and willow, and cast their nets in the accustomed manner of their trade. But all that they gathered from the sea was dead and withered, as if in the blast of great coldness such as would emanate from the trans-Arctic ice. And they drew forth from their uh, signs living monsters as well, such as the eldest captains had never beheld. Things triple-headed and tailed and finned with horror, black shapeless things that turned to liquid foulness and ran from the net like a vile ichor, or headless shapes like bloated moons with green frozen rays about them, or things leprous eyed and bearded with stiffly oozing slime. It was as if some trans-dimensional and long-blocked channel beneath the known, familiar seas of Earth had opened suddenly into the strange waters of ultra-mundane
0: oceans teeming with repulsive and malformed life. Wow, well that goes to supernatural dimensions, but at the same time still connects very much to the topic we're going to be talking about today. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, if,
1: if some of you are wondering, ultra-mundane, that just sounds like even more mundane than usual. Yeah. It, it actually means the opposite. Ultra-mundane means, like, from beyond the solar system.
0: Oh, I would not have known that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, it threw me for a curve at first, because I'm like, oh, the ultra-mundane. Yeah. Man, that must be, that's just super-mundane. But no, it, uh,
0: what does it Clark mean? knew what he was doing. Especially average. <laughs> But anyway, on these themes of slime and mucus, it got me thinking about this question, like what does life from the microscopic level to the plants and the megafauna all have in common? Well, one thing that is common to most life, especially uh, most life that lives in the water, is mucus or slime you know some kind of like slimy substances viscous slimy lubricating kinds of substances in the body uh, are really some of the keystones of organic life i was thinking about how uh, there was one time when i was in high school and i remember being present for a a sermon that was preached on the verse in the bible about how the blood is the life and the point of mm-hmm. the sermon was that uh, was that that statement, the blood is the life in the Bible is scientifically accurate, which on reflection, this kind of a funny claim to make. I mean, I guess that's true. Like if you remove all the blood from something, it doesn't live anymore. Um, but, but I started thinking about how the slime is the life. The mucus is the life. Because you've got microorganisms, of course, that secrete oozy, mucus-like substances called mucilage. Uh, But you can also find that in plants. If you break a stalk of succulent, it will leak a viscous mucilage, too.
1: Yeah, I mean, we could easily do an entire podcast series, if not an entire podcast, period, on slime, because you look at the—I mean, you just look at the ways—the importance of slime in the human body. You know, yeah. Uh, and it's 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 greatly important. Look at some of the the very unique creatures that utilize slime so well. Um, the hagfish, for example, that we've discussed numerous times—a uh, true wizard of slime, um, a sorcerer of ooze—that uh, that is able to 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 utilize this uh, this this thick slimy substance that it uh, that it exudes. Um, you know, so. So wonderfully as a self-defense mechanism.
0: Yeah, and the the truly amazing thing about the hagfish is how much of it it can create and how fast. Yeah, uh, another big one is the, the
1: slime that you encounter uh, as the very outer layer of fish in the ocean. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, like this is it, it's not just something that is on their body. It is something of their body, but it serves as an outer layer. Um, so, you know, when you're, when you're handling a fish, even if you're, you know, catching and releasing, mm-hmm. if you're disrupting that, uh, that outer layer, you're disrupting some of the protections afforded to the organism.
0: Now, but, of course, there's plenty of internal use for slime and mucus and ooze as well, because if you think about inside your body, tons of your organs and surfaces and tissues are limed with mucus of various sorts uh, that are very important for your body. I mean, you got mucus in your nose, mucus in all kinds all kinds of parts, of yeah. But of course, I guess one thing we should recognize is that, we are speaking kind of loosely in a general sense about similar types of substances with similar physical properties mm-hmm. that are not all necessarily the same thing. They're not created right. by the same biochemical pathways always, uh, you know, they come from different kinds of life. But in this loose sense, almost all life has some kind of slime or, or ooze or goo or mucus in common. Life just kind of makes mucus. Yeah, I mean, that that's really the secret of the ooze right there. But today, we wanted to look at this question of what happens when the mucus gets out of hand? What happens when it becomes a plague-like mass that is not not merely inside the body, not merely on the body, not merely uh, floating around in little tiny clumps in the ocean, but when it comes to dominate the geography and you can see it from airplanes, that's what we're going to talk about today. So, shout out that I got the idea to talk about this today when I came across an article in The Atlantic by Sarah Jong called uh, A Slimy Calamity is Creeping Across the Sea. And this article is about an organic substance that has been referred to in the scientific literature as marine mucilage. But it is more commonly known to uh, uh, people in the fishing industry and, and people who have encountered it firsthand as things like sea snot or sea saliva. Mm -hmm. And uh, the article is about how this stuff has lately become an absolute plague near the shores of Turkey, specifically in a place called the Sea of Marmara, which is in northwest Turkey, and it's the body of water that connects the Aegean Sea on the west to the Black Sea on on the northeast. And so if you have not already read any articles about this stuff or seen pictures of it, th- this one is really worth looking up to see with your own eyes. Uh, in fact, there is an astonishing photo gallery on the website of The Atlantic right now. It was posted June 21st, 2021, called Photos, Turkeys, Sea Snot Disaster. Uh, so I'd highly recommend checking this out if you can. But we will try to describe a few of these images here for those of you who can't go look it up right now. And Rob, I've got these here for you to look at as well. So I pulled a few of them. This first one was a photo taken by Mohamed Ennis uh, Yildirim. And it's an aerial photo from June 15th, 2021 of all these boats in the water off the shore of Istanbul. And it looks like they're floating in one of those buckets that people use to make tie-dye T-shirts. Except instead of all the colors of the rainbow, it's just various hues of off-white and tan. It's this giant floating, swirling, starry night of beige slime. Yeah, this is. Uh, I think this is a Getty image uh, as well from the Getty um, uh, website.
1: Right, but it is. Um, it, it, it's really beautiful. If not, if I didn't know what it was. I would just assume that this was a painting because it looks like some sort of a a surreal, uh, you know, uh, oil painted ocean upon which
0: the artist has depicted realistic looking um, depictions of ships and boats. Well, another way I could view it is, uh, again, because this is from a great distance, it is kind of beautiful. It also looks like boats that maybe somehow all became beached on a vast stretch of sand. So, like if mm, uh, yeah. like if the ocean retreated and left all these boats stranded in the dunes with these drifts and current-like uh, patterns all swirling around them. And they were just sitting in the sand. I, I, I could see that being a, uh, w- what this is. But, no, they are on the surface of the water and also i i worry for them if they must start their engines as we'll get to a <laughs> a bit later on about uh about some of the problems that this stuff causes for uh for powered boats but as beautiful as this might look from above is kind of like weirdly i don't know it, it, at that 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 boundary line between gross and beautiful when you get up close it really does get more just obviously disgusting so this next image is of a diver surfacing uh, from underneath a large mat of marine mucilage. This one was taken by Sirhat Kagdas. ...for the Anadolu Agency, which is a, a Turkish state media organization. And according to the caption, this person is involved in a marine mucilage cleanup operation at Katabostan Beach, which is uh, also uh, in in Istanbul or off the shore of Istanbul. And this is from June of 21 also. But if, if you're trying to imagine the texture of this stuff up close... From this image here, it looks kind of like if you've ever tried to make beef stock or like a pork ramen broth, all of the scum that rises to the top of the pot as the impurities are, are removed at first from the the bones and the connecting tissues, that, that stuff that floats up there, except add into that like some wilted toilet paper and aloe vera gel. Yeah, uh,
1: that that is a good description. Um, another way might be to imagine if you filled a, a crock pot, like a pressure cooker with um, cauliflower and then cooked it way too long mm-hmm. until where you just turned it to mush. Like that's what this kind of looks like.
0: Yeah, so up close, a lot of the beauty's gone, and it it becomes, uh, frankly, revolting. Uh, But I want to come back on the beautiful side, because also in this photo gallery, they had one that's an underwater image. And one of the things that came through as I started to read more and more about this stuff is how... In a lot, in some sense, you can't really appreciate what it is unless you look at views of it from underwater. Because, uh, for example, a lot of scientists had been trying to study this stuff uh, for years, but were having trouble because the equipment that they use to retrieve samples from the water would end up churning it up and shaking it up. That would kind of destroy its structure. So to really see what form it takes uh, as it's just floating in the water column, you, ha- you kind of have to go down yourself or see pictures taken from beneath the surface. So this one picture was by Sebnim Koskun also for the Anadolu agency and, uh, it's an underwater photo of a diver in the Sea of Marmara near Istanbul again from uh, this one's from May of 2021 and this one looks to me like a scene from a forbidden planet type vintage sci-fi movie. The water is dimly lit but extremely green and the diver has these twin work lamps that lo- it looks kind of like, you know, Crewman Hicks has wandered into an alien spider web. And so there's just this translucent matrix of goop enveloping everything spun right out of the she-lob of the sea.
1: Yeah, and I guess it drives home, I'm, you can't tell, really tell from the image how deep the individual is, mm-hmm. but it, you certainly get the sense that this is not a mere, merely a surface phenomena. This
0: is something that extends at least somewhat into the water column. Right, and we'll get into more detail as we go on about how that happens. I think there, there are different stages depending on the uh, the conditions that, that cause it to float or stay suspended in the water column. Um, but we'll explain that as we go on. One last photo I thought we should look at before we move on, Rob, is this one of workers trying to vacuum this stuff up with hoses. I think this is, again, near Istanbul uh, in, in the Marmara Sea. This is from June 2021. Uh And the stuff here that's going up into the hose looks very much like overflow from a sewer clean out, yeah or or big cat vomit, like yeah. a lot of cat vomit, maybe, yeah. oh, big cat vomit, you mean like the vomit is big or like from a big cat, like a lion i'm
1: talking I'm talking like big time cat cat uh, vomit okay. here, like yeah. like cat vomit so expansive that Peter Gabriel write a song about it for real cat vomit,
0: yeah. One of the articles I was reading about this had a really good physical description. It was by uh Celine Ugertash writing for the the uh for the Guardian in May of 2021, and Ugertash said that when seen from above, it looks like a brush of beige swirled across the dark blue waters of the Sea of Marmara. Up close, it resembles a creamy gelatinous blanket of quicksand. Yeah. So, from the air, looks like a cappuccino ocean, like the
1: surface of a cappuccino. Mm-hmm. Up close, it looks—it just looks gross. Very gross.
0: Now, in that article in The Atlantic by Sarah Jong, uh, she talks about different names for the different types of accumulations of it. Uh, so you've got uh, what's known as marine snow. That's a that's a phenomenon that ultimately connects to marine mucilage. Uh, but these are, of course, tiny little flakes and droplets that are usually drifting slowly down toward the seafloor. Uh, they're, they're found in the ocean all the time, just the little flakes, little bits of life that are drifting around. But then when, uh, when the marine mucilage starts to accumulate, you've got these things called stringers, which he says resemble a kind of sticky goo. This is more... Uh, actually similar in appearance to human nasal mucus, but then you've also got clouds, which are maybe more like, uh, you know, maybe when these stringers come together, they form clouds. It's more like that giant spider web under the surface of the water. Uh, they're, they're delicate and they break apart when you touch them. Uh, but they just form these big sort of translucent white masses floating in the water. So I guess we should get more into describing the phenomenon of of what's actually happening here. I mentioned that this is something that's going on in Turkey right now, specifically in the Sea of Marmara, but marine mucilage is a broader phenomenon than what's happening in Turkey right now, both in terms of time and geography. So the Sea of Marmara is not the only place that experiences surges of this stuff, and it's not the first time it has happened, but... The slime infestation at Marmara is especially bad this year, and the problem does seem to be getting worse in the region over time. So I found a source illuminating this. It's a scientific paper discussing marine mucilage in the Adriatic Sea, which is nearby. It's in the Mediterranean. The Adriatic is the stretch of sea between Italy and the Balkans. And this is a paper by Roberto de Novaro, Serena Fonda Umani, and Antonio uh, Puscedu. And it's called Climate Change and the Potential Spreading of Marine Mucilage and Microbial Pathogens in the Mediterranean Sea. This was published in PLOS 1 in 2009. This is a highly cited paper about marine mucilage. Uh, Most of the articles that I was reading mention this paper at one point or another. Uh, But in tracking the history of this stuff, they go all the way back to the 18th century. Uh, The authors write, quote, Worldwide, the highly productive and shallow Adriatic Sea, and particularly its northern portion within the Mediterranean basin, is the area most severely affected by the outbreak of massive marine mucilage. Mucilage was reported here for the first time in 1729 and was originally described as a, quote, dirty sea phenomenon, or in Italian that would be mare sporco, uh, because it causes the clogging of fishing nets. Uh, and I do like the the name Mare Sporco. I'm not quite sure why. Maybe because it sounds like it, it has a porky element somehow.
1: It could easily be the name of a demon in Dante's Inferno. Oh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Mare Sporco hanging out with um, you know, the the, the very, with the Malacoda and all
0: Malabranca, Yeah, or yeah. oh, I, I might be getting that name wrong. The but
1: evil. There's claws. the Malabrancia.
0: Yeah, and there, there's
1: Malacoda in there, and of course Skarmiglian.
0: Skarmiglian, uh, but, Good. Yeah, lots of good names. So, what would the dirty sea demon be? I mean, usually they're more kind of like animals or personified. This would be like the ocean itself is a demon.
1: Yeah, or just kind of a roughly humanoid form made out of this uh, sea snot that we're describing. That's the way I'm picturing it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So outbreaks of sea snot, according to the authors of this paper, have been occurring in the Adriatic ever since, ever since they were observed, uh, and you know possibly before that too, but it was first documented in 1729. And they've been recurring ever since, but the frequency has increased sharply in the last 30 years or so. And this paper was published in 2009, so that would mean since around 1980. And the authors write about how once this stuff aggregates, an outbreak of marine mucilage can stay floating on the surface or suspended throughout the water column for around two to three months, and then after that it tends to float down and settle on the sea bottom. And there are several reasons why this stuff is considered undesirable by humans. Uh, some of them are pretty obvious. They write, for example, quote, The presence of mucilage makes the seawater unsuitable for bathing because of the bad smell produced and the adherence of the mucilage on the skin of bathers. <laughs> so it's kind of like, I don't know, just like describing why you wouldn't want to swim in water that has tons of mucus floating on top of it. But I appreciate that they spelled that out. Um, now, of course, I, I mentioned already that over time it tends to settle on the sea floor, and once it's there, uh, the authors write, quote, These large aggregates coat the sediments, extending in certain cases for kilometers and causing hypoxic and or anoxic conditions, which of course means that the water is being depleted of dissolved oxygen, which marine animals need in order to breathe. And then they write, uh, quote, the consequent suffocation of benthic organisms, including bottom-associated nectin, uh, provokes serious economical damage to tourism and fisheries. And a note here, uh, nectin, uh, these are some of the uh, organisms that are being affected. Nectin means animals that are strong swimmers that can move independent of water currents. So this would be opposed to seafloor organisms and plankton that just float with the currents. So several bad things about it. Obviously, it's bad for the local wildlife because it can, uh, it can smother them or suffocate them in various ways. But it's also, of course, bad for humans, not just because it kills all the wildlife, but because it creates these bad conditions. Nobody wants to swim in the water. It's unsightly. It hurts tourism. But also it creates a big problem for boats and fisheries. Uh, so in Zhang's article, she talks about how um, boats sometimes can't go to sea. When there's all this mucus floating around because the mucus, um, it quote clogs up the seawater intake that cools the motor. So if you got all this mucus going in where the motor is trying to take in water for coolant, uh, I guess that just clogs it up and then the engine can't work.
1: Yeah. So not even getting into the, how little you want to swim in these waters, it impacts your ability to to go out in a boat and fish, to use boats uh, for certain degrees of, uh, of trade and travel. Um, yeah, it's a problem.
0: Regarding the effect on the benthic organisms that are on the seafloor, uh, Rob, I found a couple of pictures just for you to look at that include a starfish and one has a crab that are both apparently just dead and smothered by this sea snot. They, they have turned to kind of pallid shade and are uh i don't know what exactly about it killed them perhaps it smothered them or interfered with their ability to breathe or maybe it's uh it going through its decomposition cycle somehow removed dissolved oxygen from the water that could be affecting them as well but yeah it just looks generally very bad for the what's living on the seafloor.
1: yeah i encourage everyone to look up these photos because it yeah it's just it looks like zombified sea life it's just really ghastly and the photography is 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 beautiful in its own right it's 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 excellent photography Mm -hmm. but it is capturing something that is rather ghastly and disturbing shout out to astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples
0: rob as the uh, the local host with allergies here they sent you some of their nasal spray Now, we mentioned that a lot of the older documented outbreaks of of marine mucilage uh, mentioned in that 2009 paper in PLOS-1 were in the Adriatic Sea, which is, of course, different than the Sea of Marmara. Um, apparently, uh, there had not been outbreaks of marine mucilage reported in Turkey before 2007. But now, of course, that's where the big problem is uh, situated. It seems like some of the problem from the Adriatic has been alleviated by some uh, interventions that we'll talk about later on. But this current outbreak of sea snot seems to have begun in December of 2020. Uh, Some of the early signs of it were that uh, fishermen were noticing that it was preventing them from using their nets. I saw this thing about the fisher nets uh, mentioned in a lot of articles, and I was trying to figure out exactly how it makes the nets unusable. I couldn't nail that down for certain, though I think possibly what's going on is it makes the nets too heavy, as it like sort of clogs them up, they they don't really work, or possibly it interferes with uh, the ability of water to pass freely through what's supposed to be the holes in the nets.
1: Yeah, you can easily imagine how it would turn uh, a net into a, a parachute made out of uh, out of netting and slime.
0: Yeah, gross. Uh, and another thing is, I actually saw this claim cited in an article for the Washington Post by Antonia Nuri Farzan Uh, who said that it's also sometimes making people wonder whether fish that are successfully caught in the the snot-infested waters are safe to eat. Uh, And there was no ruling on whether they were or not. Uh, I I don't know of any reason why they wouldn't be, but at least said people were worried about that. But it wasn't just uh, people in the fishing industry who started to notice this this problem with the new outbreak of marine mucilage. Uh, also it was noticed by uh, by scientists. There is one example cited in that article in The Guardian by uh, Celine Ugurtash. and this one um, this one refers to a scientist named Dr. Barish Otsalp, who is a marine biologist at the uh, Chanakale Oskis Mart University. And uh, th- this researcher was diving to look at corals off the Chanakale Strait and noticed the extent of the sea saliva underneath the water and points out that it's especially dangerous to immobile animals along the bottom of the ocean like coral. Uh, so, so Dr. Otsalp here found that, uh, that the gold coral, or Savalia savaglia, and the violescent sea whip, or Paramuricea clavata, Were the most harmed by the sea snot bloom. And then near the shoreline, it of course threatens fish populations. Uh, There have been reports that thousands of fish have turned up dead near coastal settlements. So it's bad stuff for the marine life. So just utter disruption here. It's, it's,
1: you know, we recently talked about. the sargasm weed and and uh, and large quantities of that uh, that uh, that have at times become a problem for coastal communities and and in, ca- in actually creating some of the same problems we've discussed here, making it difficult to to uh, to to leave in a boat that sort of thing, making mm-hmm. it unpleasant to visit the the beach or be in the water. Uh, but in in those cases, I mean, the sargasm is still a, an environment that things are thriving in, and mm-hmm. this this seems like more of a total disruption of of the, uh, of the marine environment at, at all levels.
0: Well, it turns out there's evidence that something is thriving in here, but it's not very helpful <laughs> for the marine life around it. So we'll get more to that in just a moment. Uh, first, I guess I wanted to talk about, like, what actually is this stuff physically? Like, what is it and, and how is it formed? Uh, so here I'm turning back to that study from 2009 in PLOS 1 by Denovaro et al., And the way they explain it is that marine mucilage starts with what's known as marine snow. So I'm going to read from their their, uh, explanation in their introductory section here. They define marine snow as, quote, amorphous aggregates with a size ranging from a few millimeters to several meters. And so these are just little flecks of organic material that form an important part of, of the ocean because, of course, it's marine snow raining down from the, the, the trophic uh, areas in the top of the water column where you've got the photosynthesizing organisms. You know They make energy from, from sunlight and then they die and float down or stuff they produce comes off of them and floats down and it creates this sort of blizzard of organic material that rains down below and feeds organisms that live much lower down in the water column who are not able to produce energy from sunlight. And of course, that process is, uh, is as they say, ubiquitous in the oceans of the world. It, it's everywhere. Uh, but then they write, quote, water column stratification. Uh, so that's the, the, the forming of these layers in the water column. Water column stratification under summer conditions favors the progressive coalescence of small sized aggregates into large, massive sheets thin layers, flocks, and clouds, which are collectively known as marine mucilage. Mucilage is a gelatinous, evolving stage of marine snow, which can reach huge dimensions and cover areas of hundreds of kilometers of coastline. Now, we'll come back to the exact mechanics of how those aggregates form in the water column, but yeah, so what's going on here is that something that would be marine snow, just these little flecks of uh, mucus or decomposing matter or, or organic material of some kind, collect when there are certain conditions in the water column, and they start to stick together and form these huge masses, and those masses become marine mucilage. Again, the gelatinous evolving stage of marine snow. So in terms of its chemical composition, they say marine mucilage is, quote, uh, "...is made of exopolymeric compounds with highly colloidal properties that are released by marine organisms through different processes, including phytoplankton exudation of photosynthetically derived carbohydrates produced under stressful conditions." Uh, And then they say, and through the death and composition of cell wall debris, such a release can be coupled with a limited ability of prokaryotes to hydrolyze these exopolymers by means of extracellular enzymes, leading to the release and accumulation of large molecular weight compounds in the system. Uh, so it, so a lot of this stuff is being produced by phytoplankton, and it has a carbohydrate basis, though uh, another researcher that I was reading was saying that the the marine mucilage ends up being this combination of carbohydrates, proteins, and fat, which is funny because it makes it like, you know, it's the full gamut. It's like a gravy. <laughs> it's got everything. But apparently these, these uh, carbohydrates from phytoplankton are a big part of it. And then we come back to what you mentioned a minute ago about whether this would be a habitat or not. So we know the sargassum seaweed is a is a habitat. Uh the authors here write quote these processes can be associated with viral infections of prokaryotes and phytoplankton, and the consequent cell lysis (parentheses viral shunt), which further contributes to release and accumulation of dissolved organic matter in the water column. And what they end up alleging is that the the buildup of marine mucilage essentially forms a habitat for potentially pathogenic bacteria and viruses. So E. coli can thrive in these things, which can lead to infections of other organisms in the water, which can sort of create a feedback loop here.
1: Oh, yeah, that's, that's not good at all. That's, that's not the, the sort of environment we're looking for.
0: So I guess it's time to talk about, like, what are the causes? What What is the mm. process and what are the causes that creates this kind of unprecedented buildup of, of marine mucilage? Well,
1: having seen Ghostbusters 2, uh, I assume it has to do with like negative, um, uh-huh. uh, like like uh, emotions building up in an urban population.
0: The, some museum in Istanbul imported a painting of Vigo the Carpathian, and yeah. <laughs> uh, the, yeah, and everybody in the city started being mean to each other, and then this is what you get.
1: All right, case closed. We got to do something about that uh, that painting. Got to shoot that painting
0: with some uh, some charged slime. Is that what they do? And I, oh yeah, they oh that's right in, in Ghostbusters too. Yeah, they charge the slime with good vibes by having everybody mm-hmm. dance to that song, and yep, then they yep. shoot it. And on then the they painting.
1: shoot it out of the guns. Yeah, yeah they defeat they defeat Vigo with good vibes. <laughs> that was a that was you know say what you will about Ghostbusters too, but it leaned into the slime. Uh, like I, I'm guessing Aykroyd and, and Ramis and they were like, well, what worked in the first one? Oh, the slime, the slime worked. Let's do uh-huh. let's
0: do even more slime. Ghostbusters Two is not great, but all the Vigo, the Carpathian scenes are wonderful.
1: Oh yeah, uh, I forget that name of that actor. Peter he's, McNichol
0: he's, talking to him.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, he's a, a German actor that played uh, the actual Vigo, uh-huh. um, a former boxer, kind of a man of mystery. Uh, but he he also pops up in John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. Oh, okay. playing a, a distraught uh, villager in some sort of nightmare realm, and it's a it's it's a one, one of many fun little cameos in that movie. Wilhelm von Homburg uh, was his name. And he was a wrestler, uh, perhaps a boxer, too, but he was definitely a wrestler. Oh. He was also in Die Hard.
0: Oh, in Die Hard. Oh, was yeah. he one of the villains?
1: Oh, I, I almost, I'm almost certain he was. Yeah, I don't think this is the kind of guy who played anything but.
0: Wait, it wasn't the police chief who was also in uh, The Breakfast Club.
1: No. I can't imagine this guy ever played a police <laughs> chief, not not in the U.S. Anyway, maybe he played police chief in. It. I could see him playing a cop, like in a German
0: show. So it's possible. Uh-huh. It, it, no, I was joking. It was not that guy <laughs> at all. I forget his name, but that guy's that guy. Everybody knows that guy. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, sorry. We we got to come back to so the causes the causes of marine mucilage. Um. So across everything I was reading, there are three main causes that have been uh, put forth as the probable primary explanations of what's going on with this with this sea snot outbreak. And these causes are, and I'll explain each of these as we go on, warmer temperatures, calm weather, and specific kinds of water pollution. Now, first of all, I mentioned warm temperatures. Why would warm temperatures contribute? Well, one reason is that uh, phytoplankton populations apparently grow more at higher temperatures, and phytoplankton seems to be one of the main or the main source of of this marine mucilage buildup. And so, of course, ocean waters are getting warmer. That's consistent with climate change. Uh, one uh, Turkish researcher I was uh, reading was cited in that Washington Post article mentioned that the Sea of Marmara was several degrees warmer than average after a very mild winter. And, of course, uh, there's just continuous warming of the oceans due to climate change. Uh, but then also you've got the idea of particular kinds of pollution, So one thing that is definitely true is you don't want to overfeed the sea that can cause really bad things to happen downstream in the ocean. Uh, These explosions of sea saliva in Turkey are probably caused, like I said, mostly by phytoplankton, which are microscopic marine algae, and they are primary autotrophs in the waters. So they are sort of the bottom level of the food chain within ocean ecosystems. They're photosynthesizers, they're they're the base of the food chain in the oceans, but also producers of oxygen that allows water-dwelling animals to breathe. Uh, But when phytoplankton populations surge, they can have devastating effects on the ecosystems around them. And one way that phytoplankton populations can surge and uh, and existing phytoplankton can produce uh, an excess of mucus is when there are certain imbalances of nutrients that are injected into natural waterways and specifically what i've seen called out here are the nutrients nitrogen and phosphorus now why would the sea of marmara have especially high levels of nitrogen and phosphorus well first of all it is fed directly from the black sea which tends to be nutrient rich anyway but it's also fed by wastewater runoff from like 20 million people, which would include uh, un- untreated wastewater, so like uh, like sewage, but also agricultural runoff. yeah, which contains things like fertilizers. This can lead to a chain reaction in which the phytoplankton uh, sort of become stressed. And under conditions of stress, they exude mucus uh, or this, this mucus-like material that, of course, can lead to these runaway conditions. Now, how exactly does this process happen? Uh, well, it's actually described very well in that, that Sarah Jong article in The Atlantic from, from, uh, from June 21st. So she backs up to the, the starting point that we already talked about with, uh, with marine snow. You've got marine snow already in the water, but then you've got these Im- imbalances of nutrients that are largely caused by, uh, uh, the untreated wastewater and the agricultural runoff that may contain fertilizers. And this leads the phytoplankton in the water to produce copious mucus. The excess of mucus then accumulates into these, these, Things uh, we mentioned earlier that were sometimes called stringers, the, you know, these snot like mm-hmm. strings, and then that accumulates into clouds and then ends up uh, somehow floating up onto the surface, becoming these sheets. Uh, now, one question is why do warm water and, and calm weather conditions also contribute to marine mucilage buildup? Well, it goes like this. In the warmer months, the sun heats up the top layer of the water column near the surface, which causes increased stratification. So, The warm layer of water above the cold layers of water below and the cold layer of water is denser than the warm layer of water and uh, salinity also affects this. saltier water is denser than less salty water, which is why in really salty bodies of water like the Dead Sea, it's easier for things to float it's because the water is denser. But also, cold water is denser. So, mucus forms in the top layer of the water, where the photosynthesizing organisms, the the phytoplankton are, up near the, the top of the water. They produce the mucus. After it's produced, the mucus starts to sink. But because of the water column stratification, at some point, it hits dense, cool water and stops sinking. It just hangs around. And as it hangs around, it starts to aggregate together and accumulate into these strings or clouds. And here's where the third element comes in. I mentioned uh, I mentioned warm temperatures, uh, the the pollution, but also the calm weather. Winds and storms could normally come in to rough up the waters and essentially tear up, churn up, forming strings and clouds of mucus. But if the weather is especially calm, that doesn't happen. Uh, For example, we talked about how this was historically observed in the Adriatic Sea. The Adriatic Sea tends to be relatively calm. Then after that, Zhang writes, there are bacteria within all of this mucilage that start to decompose it. And as they decompose it, they release gases, forming bubbles within this accumulated matrix of mucus, and then it floats to the top of the water and collects in sheets on the surface. Uh, And one astounding fact that uh, Zhang mentioned is that, quote, In the Adriatic Sea, the arm of the Mediterranean just east of the Italian peninsula, the floating mucus can dry and toughen in the sun. Seagulls are known to walk on it. Oh, Wow. today's episode is brought to you by ebay ebay motors is here for the ride remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease fresh installs and a whole lot of love you transformed a hundred thousand miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own look to your left look to your right it's official no one's got a ride like this
1: So one of the things about this I mean we're talking about this this overabundance of slime mm-hmm. uh, caused by these, uh, these uh, by by pollution, changes in the environment. I mean it, it really you really get the sense of like of the, the mass oozing of, of the ocean's pus, you know, uh-huh. like the the, uh, the the oozing of a massive infection.
0: Yeah, that's funny. One of the articles I read, though I don't recall which one did cite a, a marine biologist, I think, or it was some researcher in this area who was saying that it's sort of like the ocean has the flu and this is, this yeah. is the mucus coming out of its nose. You know, it, it, it reflects a sort of general sickness in the ecosystem due to, uh, due to pollution, due to changing temperatures and, and all that adding up together. Now, of course, it comes to the question of can anything be done about this uh, about this cease not, the, the the plague of mucus here. There are a few sort of levels at which you could answer that question. One is, well, can anything be done about it once it is here, once it's all collected? Uh, I've read that Turkish authorities are trying some possible solutions uh, in that, that Washington Post article I mentioned by Antonia Nuri Farzan. Uh, she mentions that they, they have uh, floated the idea of... of pun not intended, of uh, dredging the seafloor as a way to possibly try to remove some of it that has settled on, on the bottom. Uh, but they're also just vacuuming it up in the surface, from the surface. And we've seen that in some of the images we talked about earlier, these photographs of these <laughs> workers with hoses just trying to suck up the slime from near the coasts. Uh, Farzan writes, quote, in Izmit, workers have laboriously collected more than 110 tons of the mucus, which was sent to an incinerator for disposal. I wonder what it smells like downwind of that incinerator. What What is the smell of grilled snot? Ooh,
1: man. I don't, this would be a good one for the Ghostbusters, right? Because it's yeah. this is the smell of having just fired uh, a proton pack uh, into some sort of a slime ectoplasm based organism or spiritual
0: being. Fried ghost. Yes. So there are you know some things that people are that they're trying to do. Turkish authorities are trying to do uh, now that this problem has already happened. The bigger question would be how do you prevent it from happening in future seasons? Uh so one of the big things obviously is reducing pollution, reducing wastewater runoff into the Sea of Marmara or reducing it into any sea where this could happen. Um and that would prevent these this build up, this imbalance of nutrients that sets off this chain reaction by feeding the phytoplankton like that. And there is some indication that that could work. Uh, according to, to Zhang's article, there's there's every reason to think halting pollution could actually make a difference in the following years uh, because of what we've already seen work in the Adriatic Sea. You remember the Adriatic is where uh, where these older reports from the 18th century of the, the Mare Sporco had taken place. And Zhang writes, quote, In the Adriatic, uh, uh, Puskedu says, and that's a researcher who was one of the authors of that 2009 article, says that mucilage outbreaks have died down since Italy began cleaning up the wastewater that flows into it. The sea has returned to what looks like a healthier, less slimy normal. So it looks like this sort of worked in the Adriatic, just stop polluting the water as much. But there have been other things that, uh, that have been mentioned. Uh, in that, that Guardian article I was talking about earlier, it cites a researcher named Dr. Uh, Neslihan Osdelise who is a marine biologist at Istanbul University. And uh, this researcher also mentions overfishing. Stop overfishing, because mm-hmm. uh, fishing removes organisms that prey on the phytoplankton and help keep it from getting out of control. So it's kind of like how you know you don't want to take the wolves out of the park, right? Because right. you get an overabundance of prey animals. You also don't want to take the fish that feed on these autotrophs, take too many of them out of the waterways.
1: Right. So – so, yeah, don't so, – so we need to, – to not overfish, we need to cut down on the amount of uh, pollutants that are leaking into these uh, these bodies of water, and uh, – well, I mean, on top of that, too, we already pointed to climate
0: change uh, being an issue as well. Right, and as with so many issues you end up seeing, and like, why is this weird thing happening in the ocean right now? It seems like a, a- – large contributing macroscopic factor in the background is climate change, probably, you know, as the as the waters warm, that changes just all kinds of complex interactions in the ecosystems. And so, of course, climate change is really the the ultimate battle we have to fight in the long term. But so I guess that does it for me with the, the specific outbreak of uh, marine mucilage in, in the Sea of Marmara. And I, I guess originally I was just captivated by that, that article in The Atlantic and the photographs that I saw along with it. But it also, this subject got me thinking about how, how slime, mucus, and snot are, as we said earlier, fairly loose terms. And not every kind of snot in the sea is identical or has the same biochemical origin. And when, so when I was searching around for other reports of different kinds of sea snot, Quote, one that I came across was a totally different substance that was referred to by researchers with this term that was in the Gulf of Mexico following the Deepwater Horizon oil spill.
1: Yeah, yeah. This is the perfect place to go. You know, having just discussed the uh, the, the horrors of the oil age, um, the ongoing horrors of the oil age, because, uh, yeah, the, the Deepwater Horizon spill uh, gave us uh, kind of a, a particular type of of slime. Uh, So the the Deepwater Horizon spill, to refresh everyone, this was by many estimates the largest marine oil spill in history. It occurred on April 20th, 2010 in the Gulf of Mexico on the BP-operated Macondo Prospect, Macondo Oil Prospect, and it dumped uh, an estimated 4.9 million barrels. I've also seen, I think these were earlier estimates, 4.1 million barrels uh, into uh, the Gulf of Mexico, in addition to an estimated... 363,000 tons of natural gas.
0: It's a sort of unimaginable scale.
1: Yeah. And, um, you know, as the name implies here, the Deepwater Horizon operated in deep water, just beyond the edge of the continental shelf. And uh, we were both looking at a paper from from Mark Schroep uh, that was uh, in nature back in 2011 so in the you know this came out right afterwards this was in the immediate uh, uh, period of 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 research just a lot of researchers getting involved in trying to figure out what is the damage mm-hmm. you know the, i think it pretty quickly we realized it was extensive but uh, but exactly what was the damage to uh, to the environment and this article uh, which you can look up it's available for free online is titled deep wounds And in in that uh, article, uh, Schropp um, uh, points out that collection and burning efforts uh, only took care of an estimated quarter of the liquid from the well. The rest of it was dispersed into the sea in small droplets, uh, in um, tar balls that formed. Some of it was chemically dispersed, and some of it evaporated and, and or dissolved. But Shorpe writes that researchers began to realize pretty quickly that while some of the, the, uh, you know, the surface shallow and coastal damage was the most obvious, deep environments were hit really hard as well. Uh, the researchers he talked to in the article describe a pervasive layer of putrefied sediment uh, containing dead sediment dwellers, you know, different organisms and worms and the like, mm-hmm. dead jellyfish from layers above that had died and uh, had drifted down. And also highly disrupted um, or even just, uh, you know, canceled, canceled out microbial activity. So the result was kind of a, a, a necro sludge. They did find some things that were still technically alive in it. They, they pointed to some snails in particular, but the snails were no longer moving. They weren't behaving like living snails anymore, uh,
0: which just makes it all the more creepy. And so, of course, it has a completely different original cause, but it d- this does remind me of the images of the, the uh, sludge or the slime or the mucus from these phytoplankton blooms settling down on the seafloor in the Sea of Marmara and smothering organisms there. Yeah, some of the
1: descriptions were also uh, sounded a lot like what we're looking at here. It was described as looking like cauliflower, you know, Mm -hmm. as having this kind of this ghastly uh, appearance. Now, in 2013, scientists from the Gulf of Mexico Oil Spill and uh, Ecosystem Science Conference said that as much as one-third of the oil from the Deepwater Horizon disaster may have mixed with deep ocean sediments. And, and here, it risks you know, lasting damage to, the, to ecosystems and commercial fisheries. Researchers were reporting, for instance, normally pink and lighter jellies. Uh, From uh, from further up in the water column that were found uh, to be black or brown. And so, yeah, the the damage from an event on this scale was just thought to extend just throughout the water column. So certainly the surface, certainly um, on the on the the shore, but also uh, deep
0: down, uh, right down to the very bottom. Everything about that is a, a truly sad and devastating story. But thinking about biological mucus, I I do kind of come back to, despite you know all of the grossness that we've been talking about throughout the middle of this episode, a kind of wonder,
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. um,
0: about the ways that that uh, tiny, um, you know, microscopically, invisibly microscopic organisms can so quickly uh, change the whole environment with, with just, like, releasing mucus or mucus-like substances. Obviously, the effects are bad, but in a strange way, I find something conceptually kind of beautiful about it.
1: In a way, like, the the viscosity comes first. Like, if you had a scenario where there are a, uh, a mythological creator god or goddess is sort of toying around with different ideas, and, and you know, one day they have something, and— uh, one of their attendants comes up and says, "Oh, what do you what do you got there?" And they're like, "Oh, it's it's great. It's um, it's uh, look at it. It's, uh, I think I'm thinking I'm going to call it slime. I'm going to base an entire ecosystem on this stuff. What do you think? Whole planet." And they're like, "Yeah, yeah, let's do it. The mucus is the life." Yeah, I mean, maybe that's one of the reasons why slime based creatures and monsters sometimes resonate is that. Um, is that we, we realize that, that this isn't, this is, this is life. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, this is a hallmark of life. That's why the blob is, is grim. That's why various slime creatures are grim, uh, because they're just an exaggeration of what we see when we look, uh, closely at the, the world around us.
0: Uh, Maybe the same way that uh, people watch crime shows and antiheroes and all that and see uh, people behaving badly and kind of secretly Mm -hmm. see elements of their own personality that that they kind of keep submerged throughout life, but are coming through in this character on the screen or in the book. Uh, I wonder if it's similar like that, but at a biological level with with slime monsters, you kind of you see that part of yourself. You kind of see like, ooh, this mass of floating mucus in a way that's kind of what that's what I am. That's a big part of me.
1: Oh, man, you know, I'm I'm smelling a new genre of podcast now. I think we'll call it True Slime. True Slime. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. We'll be pioneers. Yeah. That's got to already exist. Somebody's already got a True Slime surely. podcast. Surely. I mean, I, surely. We'll go good.
1: Like okay, I say, that. there's enough there. I think you could make a podcast, call it True Slime, uh-huh. and just talk about something slime related in every episode, and you'd be good to go.
0: God, that sounds like
1: it was made for me. All right, well, we're gonna go ahead and close the book on this one. But hey, if you wanna listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, You know where to find us. Check out the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Uh, You can find that wherever you get your podcasts. You get your core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Listener mail on Mondays. Uh, What's on Wednesday? Artifact. Friday, we do a little uh, Weird House Cinema, which is just our time to talk about uh, weird movies with uh, none or less of the science. Sometimes we sneak a little science in there. Uh, But anyway, that's the schedule. Wherever you listen to us, though, if the platform gives you the ability to rate
0: and review and even subscribe,